Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to this week's Character Unlock, where we are going to spend a little bit of time, or almost all of our time, I think, talking all things Call of Duty, because Call of Duty came out this week, and there's not an awful lot else worth talking about when Call of Duty arrives. I am your host, Andrew Brooker, along with me is, as always, my good buddy, John Miller. Hello, mate. Hi, I'm Brooks. How's things? Yeah, good, mate. How about you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Burnt out from playing Call of Duty this weekend. I annihilated that bad boy over the weekend. Yeah, I had a I had a tough one actually. Literally, I had my little two square foot on the the floor in the living room, and I barely moved until I'd finished the campaign. I I put in a, a session this weekend, but we'll you know what we'll get to that in a bit because there's one bit of news, just the one. I was kind of hoping that today was just going to be start talking about Call of Duty and then move on, and then I looked at the calendar and realised what yesterday was. And from here on in, I'm just going to let you do all of this because this is all you, mate. You tell us about yesterday. Yesterday, to those of you who don't know, was the 7th of November or N7 day. Now, some of you may not know what N7 is. N7 is the Marines, uh, well, the greatest of the human Marines in the Mass Effect franchise. N7, being what it is, was Commander Shepard, was the, was the, uh, the lead N7 who later become the Spectre, who is the special uh, police for the Mass Effect universe. He basically saved the world and the rest of the galaxy from the Reapers in the Mass Effect franchise. So, N7 Day was yesterday, so naturally, EA announced more about Mass Effect Andromeda, which is coming out early next year, I believe. And it's going to be the game that's going to cause me to stop existing in everywhere but my Xbox for a good few weeks, if not maybe a month. Beyond that, there was also an announcement later on in the day that Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3 were made backwards compatible on the Xbox One. A bit later on, lovely as it is, they announced it was also, because it's backwards compatible, it's an EA title, EA Access picked it up. So right now you can get all three Mass Effect games for free if you've got EA Access. Now, EA Access is a fair whack of money a year. It's like the price of a game. And you're getting the three probably greatest games I've ever played in my life for nothing, essentially. Pretty much one of the best days ever in the year for Mass Effect players is N7 Day. Yesterday was not a disappointment. Unlike, well, I think last year's was a, a bit iffy, but this year, definitely well worth it. So, step back a second, because remember, of course, I don't know Mass Effect that well. I'm not that big a fan. So you tell me Mass Effect Andromeda's coming out 
spring next year. What's Mass Effect Andromeda and where does it sit in this, the timeline for Mass Effect 1, 2 and 3? More importantly, what I mean is, they're 30 to 40 hour games. Do I have to fucking play Mass Effect 1, 2 and 3 before Andromeda comes out? Well, by all intents and purposes, yes, play Mass Effect 1, 2 and 3 before Andromeda <laughs> comes out. Because you're really missing out on games in that way, because they are possibly some of the greatest bits of storytelling. However, Mass Effect Andromeda takes place about 600 years into the future, because that's roughly how long it takes for the people to transport from Earth to the Andromeda galaxy. They're in cryosleep during this time. The events of Andromeda start on their little journey about the same time that the Lair of the Shadow Broker DLC is taking place. So, and that's in Mass Effect 2, so which is before the arrival of the Reapers, who are the the main enemy, in, I guess, in the Mass Effect franchise. So, the guys who are travelling to Andromeda don't know anything about what happened to Shepard at the end of the Mass Effect. They don't really know about the Reapers, I'm assuming, because nobody really cared about the Reapers' arrival until the very end of Mass Effect 2, if not the start of 3. So, okay. you get yourself that little window of everything's happy, stick a load of people on a giant spaceship, put them in cryosleep for 600 years, launch them off into the distance to go to another galaxy, and they're none the wiser about anything. As far as they're concerned, Earth is absolutely fine and nothing bad happened. So, simply put, this game features almost nothing from the original, apart from a couple of the races that were trans uh, that transported from our galaxy, the Milky Way, to the galaxy of Andromeda. Which means that Andromeda's going to feature brand new bad guys, brand new alien species. And in the trailer, it was very, very well done, in that at one point one of the human characters says that we're the aliens now. Yeah, I saw that in the trailer. It did kind of stick for me when I saw that bit. I thought, okay, so are they setting it up? I know uh, Bioware stuff. I've been playing Bioware stuff for donkey's years. So I, I know that they're good storytellers. So when, when they say things like, you know, we're the aliens now, are they setting up to have it so that the humans and whoever else is with them in cryosleep are treated like the invaders and they're going to be the bad guys whether or not we want them to be? It's an interesting way to look at it, and you know what? I have complete faith in what Bioware are going to put for this one. I think that if we are going to be considered the bad guys, it's definitely going to be an interesting one. It's not like it's a very simple that we're the alien invaders, but we're going to make them the bad guys, like what Hollywood did with all the cowboys and Indian films, where they made the Native Americans be the bad guys just because they're not... The, the, the so English they're speaking, white. they're not the white man. But and do we still get, do we know any details about Andromeda? Do we know do we still get the, the you know the character creation and all that kind of shit? Are we allowed to have a female protagonist? Yes, the the story will centralise around a brother and a sister. You can pick uh, to be either of them, the rider brother and sister. And the interesting okay. thing, instead of what it was where it was uh, uh, Commander Shepard or Fem Shep and yeah. that's it, you are Shepard. You get to be... Femshep still sucks as a name, you realise this, right? Of course it sucks as a name, but... It should have been Moose Effect. <laughs> that that kind of works, but the, the new one is going to be... <laughs> it's the Ryder family, you're the Ryder siblings, and you pick either the bloke or the woman, and the interesting thing is, is the other one is still in the game. So if you're okay. the bloke Ryder, then you will bump into your sister, and if you're female Ryder, you will bump into your brother. It's... Okay. It, that, that's, it seems like it's going to be a really interesting story because 
you don't know what those kind of interactions are going to be like. Are you going to be a happy, happy family, or are you going to be uh, at some point in the that they woke up afterwards after the six hundred years and they hate each other for some strange reason? Fair enough. I, I mean, I, I take, uh, I trust you implicitly. You tell me that they're the greatest games ever, so yeah, I'll, I'll give them a go. Well, I can't think of anything better, and no one will convince me otherwise. <laughs> Fair enough. They are my yardstick. So that was the news. We had the new, the new trailer and three backwards compatible games that are now on EA Access. Yep. N7 Day worked, it, I think. And it comes out, what, March? Was it, was it supposed to be March next year? I think, I think it said March 2017. Typically, uh, Mass Effect 3 came out in a March, I believe. So, well, it might have been February. E- either way, it's still early. Early the year after their, at the N7 Day that it's announced. I think we need to move on to Call of Duty. Yeah. So I think we'll start off, and I know this should seem obvious, uh, but obviously there are going to be spoilers everywhere from here on in. And obviously the only game we'll try not to spoil is Infinite Warfare. That only came out three days ago, and to spoil that would be pretty dickish. But it's difficult to spoil a game that has a story that was like that. I don't know, there are things, because I was talking to somebody on Twitter today about it, and I was like, they quite clearly haven't got to the end of the game yet, and I want to say a couple of things, but I really can't, because it would actually spoil it. We're not talking, you know, we're not talking big world-ending events, we're talking just things that happen in the game. But outside of Infinite Warfare, I think we can safely say that we will spoil, to varying degrees, the first 12 of the main line of Call of Duty games. No, oh, I'm going to spoil the shit out of some of them. Uh, obviously, you know, we're not just going to go straight in and spoil before we say what's going on, so if there's a game you haven't played, like Call of Duty 4, for example, if you don't want to have it spoiled for you, if you're going to play it, skip forward five minutes and you'll be at the next game that you don't care about. I did briefly consider trying to do it spoiler-free and then thought it would be a very, very short podcast if we'd done that. Yeah, I'm looking through some of my notes that I made about the game's and yeah, I've not written spoilers down for any of them, but it was very difficult to write some of them in. Yeah, some of the uh, some of the stories are easier to spoil than others, very much so. So should we uh, should we dive in? Yeah, I'll let you take the lead because I started with the third one. Okay, so back in two thousand and three was when the first Call of Duty was released. Now it was released by a then very small company called Infinity Ward. You know, these are now world-famous company, but at the time nobody knew who they were. They'd been brought on by Activision to make this first Call of Duty game, and a lot of them came from 2015, 2015 Inc., the developers. These are the guys that made Medal of Honor Allied Assault, and kind of these guys moved over and became Infinity Ward and started making Call of Duty as a response to Medal of Honor and its popularity. So, literally from the start, Call of Duty was there chasing the, uh, the, the, the stuff that was popular at the time. I'm not going to hold that against it just yet. <laughs> Releasing back end of 2003, the first Call of Duty it came out on PC and Mac. That was pretty much it. Uh, early release, I believe. I can't believe this was actually a thing, but I believe at one point it came out on the fucking Nokia Engage, which is everything came out on the Engage at that point. <laughs> it's just hilarious. Now I'll be completely honest. I didn't play Call of Duty One until I got the free downloadable copy of Call of Duty Classic that came with Modern Warfare 2 like six years later. But I did play Call of Duty 1 and I actually, I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a World War 1, sorry, a World War 2 shooter. Instead of being 
it was the first it was the first game that done this whole you stick with a squad. Now you don't have control over the squad like you do in, in a lot of games nowadays. But you you stuck with a squad and whether or not they were actually helping, you had the illusion of them helping you when you got into gunfights. You weren't this lone wolf dude anymore like you were in essentially every shooter before it. And on top of it being, you know, kind of revolutionary in that aspect, it it told a story across several campaigns. So for Call of Duty 1, so like I say, back in 2003, this was revolutionary. You had a British, an American, and a Soviet campaign, all spanning between 1942 and 1945. When I was doing my notes for this, what I found really interesting, it brought back a lot of memories from when I played it. And actually, you'll notice if you ever play Call of Duty Classic, or just go back and play Call of Duty 1 on the PC, there's a lot in this game that's still there now. Outside of things like... This game, essentially, it didn't invent, but it was one of the first ones to really kind of pioneer ADS, aiming down the sights. Yeah. And give, you know, giving you an iron sight. It was one of the first games really to do that. Uh, it told a lot of stories. It told, you know, it went from covers Operation Overlord, which is basically the Battle of Normandy and D-Day. So we do that. We have the Battle of the Bulge, which was one of the last big German offensives of World War II. Uh, Operation Tonga, which was the, air, the airborne side of D-Day. Absolutely loads. It covered, you know, you, you spent time on the dam, I think it's called the, the Edesi Dam or the Eda Dam, that was destroyed by the very, very, very famous Dam Buster Squad. You know, these guys, the famous uh, footage of these guys and their bouncing bombs going across the water into this dam. It was that dam and you spend time there. You know, so it wasn't just, obviously Medal of Honor done it as well. It spent some time in real life locations, but Call of Duty seemed to have a real a real need, a real want to to get as many of these stories in and tell a story as well. Like there was always some narration or you know a bit of text to tell you what was going on. It wasn't just your dude go and shoot things. There was always a point to what you were doing. And Call of Duty One was I would I know it's become a series that's become very divisive, but I will say that Call of Duty One was revolutionary when it came out. Holy crap, dude! Thirteen years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was old enough to play it back then. You know, not not 13. that it, not that it stops the kids playing it now. Like it's like no. these eighteen-rated games, and you hear these little squeaky eleven-year-old voices down your headset when you play the multiplayer. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all interesting you say that though, because I mean, it's not the, the first couple at least. You know, obviously you were going around killing people, and that's you know that's never family-friendly. But it wasn't. It was never like ultra-violent like it can be now. And like I say, when I was going through these notes, there, there is a point where it goes from just a game to, holy shit, this is quite violent. Yeah, It ain't Call of Duty 1. Call of Duty 1 doesn't have that at all. I think it was uh, long after... I think it was the fourth one where they actually go from, well, teen rating to mature rating. So we're, yeah. go, we're talking 12 to maybe 15 stroke 18. But what, what I found really interesting, or one of the things I found really interesting when I was reading through notes for this, and, you know... I'll be honest, as much as almost anybody that would would do a podcast like this, most of my information comes from A, memory, and B, Wikipedia. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or the Call of Duty wiki if you want a, a few extra details. But, you know. But what I found interesting going through this was some of the people that were involved in the background of these things. And with Call of Duty, especially for the first half of its lifespan, it's composers, the people that do its music. Some of them, you know, when you read who it is, you know, I know that name. And Call of Duty 1's a fantastic example, and I'm absolutely going to butcher this, and I know at least one person who's going to be listening to this who's really into their film music, so I'm going to apologise profusely for mispronouncing 
Michael Jancino, I think. I fuck knows. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try it. You're gonna make me look it up just so I can find. I can pronounce it properly. G I A double N C H I N O. I'm gonna go. I always find it quite. Jackachino. Jackachino. Yeah, that works. Actually, I I missed it. I wasn't reading a composer. I was reading something off a Starbucks menu. (laughs) Can that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. So this guy, Michael Jancino. I I don't know how to pronounce his name. But you know, he done. He done work on, you know, he he done the music for a couple of the Mission Impossible films, uh, Cloverfield, the Star Trek remake, and he's pretty prolific in in Pixar Studios. He's done a, a load of their music, so you know, this isn't a nobody. They've got to come and do their music. This is a a guy that's, you know, maybe not at the time. I, I didn't go too far back in his his filmography, but you know, at least now, you know, he's pretty well known and does, you know, a lot of good work. I was very, very impressed. But actually, what impressed me, may, not the most, maybe surprised me, was when you start looking at the voice work. Because Call of Duty 1, you know, there's not that much in, in the way of, of voice acting in it. You know, they're not like we get in the later installments. But even so, we have Jason Statham makes an appearance in it. <laughs> yes, he does. As does as does Giovanni Ribisi, which I could not fucking believe. I just could not believe it. But, yeah, that was... It was interesting reading up on Call of Duty 1 because it's been a while since I've played it, but obviously I didn't play it when it first came out. I don't know what games were out in 2003, but I mean, I would have been 21. So outside of drinking a lot, I was playing probably a lot of RTS games around about that point. And certainly a World War II shooter that wasn't Medal of Honor probably wasn't on my radar at all. You were probably playing StarCraft. Or more than likely. So... And you say you never played Call of Duty 1? Didn't play Call of Duty 1. I would definitely say if it ever appears on like Steam for a couple of quid, I'd pick it up. You know, it's short. And it, had, it was it was kind of, it was praised for being a great game, but a lot of people did say, mm, the campaign's a bit short, which hasn't ever, ever changed in yeah. 13 years. Call of Duty campaigns are still short. Well, you don't but, play Call of Duty games for the campaign. Not Well, I say that. I do. Well, yeah, you do. I do. <laughs> And I'm I'm assuming a lot of people kind of do because they do have pretty decent stories across the board. We'll get into that more later, obviously. Yeah. But it's the multiplayer, which I'm guessing. Well, this is probably just number four onwards. It's the multiplayer, which is the what everyone cares about. So, it's a couple of years later, and it did take a couple of years for another Call of Duty game. And when you actually you notice that. Call of Duty 2 was also made by Infinity Ward, which makes complete sense to me because t- a two-year gap is exactly what we have now, or what we did, what we had, you know, midway through this franchise. Every studio was given two years to make their Call of Duty game, so this it seems like they were given two years to make a sequel. I kind of feel I need to clarify what we're going to be talking about because when I said I want to talk about Call of Duty, I kind of meant the 12, 13 main games. There have been dozens and dozens, dozens of spin-offs for this fucking thing. There have been Wii, you know, slightly different Wii versions. There have been DS versions, Vita versions, expansion packs that weren't really expansion packs. You know, most notably, what's going to be missing from this list because I a didn't play it and b couldn't really find out that much information about it is Call of Duty Big Red One, which always baffled me. I I just never came across it. It's not something that's ever appeared on my radar. Isn't Big Red 1 so, just Call of Duty 2? No. Except on console? I, no. Because Call of Duty 2 was a launch title for the 360. 
Okay. And then Big Red One was something else. At least this is what Wikipedia tells me. But anyway. So in, in October 2005, uh, Call of Duty 2 was released on PC. A little bit later that year on the 360, I believe, as a launch title for the 360. Again, made by Infinity Ward. Uh, classic Again. Xbox. PS2 year. 360 yeah. wasn't out then. It wasn't out. Uh, I think the Big Red One. Big Red One was made, I believe, by a different company. They were made by Grey Matter which yes. was kind of merged into Treyarch, who we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, I believe Big Red One was Call of Duty 2-ish for PS2 and Xbox Original and maybe the GameCube? Maybe. Yeah, I think GameCube, yep. yeah. Vanilla Call of Duty 2, let's call it. Standard Call of Duty 2. Let's say 2005. Infinity Ward made it again. It done a couple of things. It... it it stuck to the Call of Duty feel, you know, that everybody seemed to really enjoy, uh, and was praised heavily for it, but it also done a couple of things different, and this was where it, it done quite well. It done, it introduced regenerating health, so it was the first in the Call of Duty series to have regenerating health, so instead of running around looking for health packs, you just hide behind cover and you'll get your health back. I don't know why it was decided that we would do that, but someone somewhere decided, let's just do regen health instead, and that paved the way for almost every first-person shooter that's come out since 2005. Yeah, because nobody but wants to go looking for med packs. No. Nah. But it also, <laughs> it also introduced at the same time, it introduced the, uh, again, the thing that we see a lot now was as you get close to having, you know, very, very low health and close to dying, you get the red screen and the slightly louder heartbeat as you try and go, you know, as you try and move. And... Again, this was something that the Call of Duty essentially invented and has been a staple of the series ever since, to you know, to quite comedic lengths, as we'll discuss a little bit later on. But on top of all that, it also had a real, a, a much bigger emphasis on multiplayer. And I'm desperately hoping that anybody that's listening to this, hoping to, to t- listen to stuff about Call of Duty, realizes that I am not a Call of Duty multiplayer player. It's I usually play a little bit for each game, find I'm getting annoyed with it and turn it off. And this was no different when I first got my hands on Call of Duty 2. I don't remember much of Call of Duty 2 or 3, to be honest. I don't think they made that much of an impression on me. But I do remember playing the multiplayer and not not really liking it that much. So I moved on. And it's not to say the multiplayer is bad. The multiplayer clearly isn't that bad because for more than a decade they've been sticking to that formula and it's been working for them. But for me, Call of Duty multiplayer, not really my thing. But there was this, this emphasis on, on multiplayer for Call of Duty 2. Infinity Ward as a developer set for themselves the standard that they would try and stick to and maybe beat for the next few years. Pretty much everything. So when you played Call of Duty 2, it felt like a nice evolution of Call of Duty 1. It felt like they'd learned a few lessons that they didn't maybe need to learn, but just slight improvements that could have been made, and they definitely done that right, I think. Uh, you know, we've got the, the now iconic, if that's the word for it, uh, grenade indicator. It <laughs> tells you what direction the, great, the grenade's in, so you know which way to run from it. Yeah. I still make you that know, mistake of, now. Yeah, don't we all? <laughs> See, don't we all? danger indicator, run towards the arrow. Yes. It was a good evolution, and it more than the gameplay, more than the multiplayer for me, what it done was it was another game that was focusing a lot on you know the history and again like Medal of Honor before it and it, it had a lot of real life or real at the time scenarios that at the, you know in 2005 we hadn't really played games like that we you know we were getting into learning you know we just you know people like you and me at or just finished school and if we've got an interest in that kind of thing Call of Duty was actually really good it was you know it taught you a little bit and like Call of Duty 2 it goes 
It's got it has battles in Moscow. Uh, has the Battle of Stalingrad, which was in the first Call of Duty. This was a problem actually when I was writing these notes. This is something that came up a little bit. Again, we'll talk about it a little later on with one of the future games. But they repeated scenarios quite a bit for some of these games. Like Stalingrad comes up in one, two, and three, I believe. No, no, it doesn't come up in three. No, um, that's different. World at War, maybe I think. Stalingrad comes up in World at War, and the other one that comes up in World at War, you actually end World at War the same way you end Call of Duty One. Uh, uh, raising no. the flag in Berlin. Yep, yeah, uh, right at the Reichstag. Yeah. So yeah, Stalingrad comes back in Call of Duty Two, as does uh, you. I think you get to you do a campaign that ends with the start of Operation Overlord, which like we spoke before was was D Day. You have some extra ones. You have uh, Hill Four Hundred, which literally it was an American offensive. Up a hill. It was called Hill 400 because it was 400 meters high. Literally, that was how original it was. But, Makes sense. Yeah. But it, it had all of these scenarios that you hadn't played before, and I quite enjoyed it uh, for that. And as we go on in the series, I enjoy Call of Duty for much different, you know, much more varied things than just the historical setting, which pretty much goes out the window uh, about the halfway mark. But these actual real life scenarios and the things like, like I said, like Hill 400, it's not something everybody knows. Everybody knows, you know, Stalingrad was a major part of the war, even if you didn't realise that there was a battle of Stalingrad. Everybody knows the landing of the beaches at D-Day. Exactly. But when you can have something like, you know, like I said, it's Hill 400 or Reichstag, because not everybody knew about that at the time. To say it's it's educational and fun, no, it's not. It's a fucking shoot-you-bang-bang game. But it it sticks a couple of things in your memory that maybe you remember later on. You know, oh yeah, I knew about that, but I I played that bit in Call of Duty. So what I played it in Call of Duty, I now learnt that this was part of World War One or World War Two or whatever you know wherever we ended up at the time. But Call of Duty Two and and similar for me for Call of Duty Three, not really that much of a lasting impression. Good games, I remember them being good, but didn't really stick with me that much. Uh, not as much as some of the uh, the later ones did. But uh, you say you didn't play Call of Duty Two either, did you? No, one and two did play- I didn't play. Call of Duty Three I did. Uh, amusingly, Call of Duty 3, I played on the Wii. Wow. Yeah, I had a Wii back then. I was 16, obviously, everyone had a Wii back in 2006. It was probably one of the most fun shooters I'd ever played. I think it probably helped it was on the Wii, so I actually had the whole point and click. It was yeah. actually quite a fun game. I'm, my assumption is, is that it was no different, really, the Wii version to the the Xbox or the PlayStation version. There's, there's no real way of telling, I guess, without playing the the other versions, which I can thank the backwards compatibility. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I ever played the Wii version. I would, I'd imagine that they're not that much different, mainly because it had a very, very short turnaround. Yeah, it was what eight months, I think they said. Yeah, it was, it, under a year, so, Treyarch were given less than a year to develop Call of Duty Three, and I mean, with that in mind, it wasn't a bad game. Well, no, there, there was what fourteen, fifteen missions. And yeah. and what it was a uh, four characters it was what the American, British, Canadian, and the Polish guys. Yeah. Yeah. So four interlocking campaigns that kind of tell a story, an over story them between them, which was some which was new to the Call of Duty story because before it was a series of separate campaigns, and now it was just one master campaign where you all have one goal at the end, of well beating the Nazis, obviously. Yeah. So this one was where the other two had spent time across multiple theatres of war, if you like. This one, while it had four campaigns, it was all centred around the same area and the same operation 
more or less. The Normandy Breakout so, or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it's called the Normandy Breakout. It was an area called Ch- Chambois. Chambois. I think. Chambois. There you go. I don't do French. <laughs> I barely do English. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. But it was it was said just basically just around that area. And while it was kind of, there was, there was an interlocking campaign and it was across a, a wide area, it all had, you had the same goal. The thing for me, and I don't know if, if you're the same, you you maybe can talk a bit more about it, but there wasn't that, there was only really one memorable mission for me in Call of Duty 3, and outside of being an overrun tank operator at the bottom of a hill, I don't remember much. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> now, I remember the, the British campaign, because there was there was the scene in it, in one of the cutscenes, because in, in the British campaign, it was the combined British and French, so it was you, you're playing as a British guy, and you help a load of French SAS do a fair bit of work. And according to Wikipedia, there are characters who've trans uh, moved from other Call of Duty games, United Offensive, whatever that is. I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that was the first one. United Offensive was a spin-off or a side project of something. It was one of the ones that appeared in the list of Call of Duty games that I had no fucking idea what it was. Apparently, if you care enough about Call of Duty that you've played the other spin-off games, then yes, these are char- characters that are featured in both that, and they've moved into Call of Duty Three. Some of them later oh, you, later die. United apparently. Offensive. United Offensive was an expansion pack for Call of Duty One. Oh, okay. Which I didn't even realise was a thing. Appar- apparently, they've been doing DLC all the way back in Call of Duty One. Anyway, so I remember the French English campaign because it was that was the one that featured stealth. It was the the one you had. I think you had a silenced pistol, or at the very least, a silenced rifle, because you were trying to secure a zone because you just parachuted in into northern France that was in an area that was occupied by German troops. So I I remember that part. Well, this was like ten years ago. So the fact that I remember that is quite impressive. That's not bad going at all. Now the thing with Call of Duty Three, like again, like doing. You know, reading up on it, and I didn't realise this at the time. There are a couple of big names again in the background for it. So the music was uh, produced by Joel Go- Goldsmith. Joel Goldsmith. I can't believe you've managed to not be able to pronounce the most English name that we've come Joel. across so far. But yes, yeah, so Joel, Jerry Goldsmith's son, Joel, who didn't do much. He, he, you know, he was a, a relatively well-known composer, but was kind of always overshadowed by his dad. But he done the music for it. But it was written by a guy called Mark Guggenheim, who also wrote things like Perfect Dark Zero. So for me, well, you know, I mean, Perfect Dark Zero for me wasn't that good. But it, it kind of Call of Duty Three when you when I read that and I went that kind of that explains a lot of the negativity towards Treyarch. Call of Duties, in my opinion. You know, when you, when you half-ass it with a not very well-known composer and a not very well-known writer, and, and obviously, you know, it's not always their fault. They've only given a few months to make the damn game. But from what I remember of Call of Duty 3, it was a weak instalment in comparison to the first two. Wow, this the writer really didn't do very well, even after doing Call of Duty 3. No. <laughs> Looking, he, he wrote a, sc- a screenplay for Green Lantern. Oh wow! Yeah, that's that's not good. Uh, so it, it essentially, like Call of Duty Three, essentially became the first churned out Call of Duty game. Yeah, the the downhill spiral of churning out Call of Duty games every year. Yep. Kind of, it started badly, but at least they had the other development team working on on a good Call of Duty game. Yeah. So obviously we have yeah, Call of Duty Three is done, and 2007 rolls along. And this happens. 50,000 people used to live here. Now it's a ghost town. 
so-called leaders prostituted us to the West, destroyed our culture, our economies, our honor. U.S. Marines stationed on high alert were given the order to invade the small... to our country. We shall lay waste to theirs. You think this will stop the bloodshed? Forty four, modern warfare. This anyone that's played any Call of Duty game will tell you this was the turning point for Call of Duty. This Not just began... Call of Duty. Just shooting in general. Yeah, and especially as much as I, I hate to have to talk about it, multiplayer shooters as well. I mean, this Modern Warfare blew everything out of the water. It was a, an honest-to-goodness phenomenon that just no one expected to happen. It was the golden egg. And it really, really was. But it was... So, Infinity Ward, at this point, they've, they've obviously gone, well, we need to not do another World War Two game. You know, we need to do something a little bit different. There's only so many so, battles out there that people know about, that people care enough about to keep playing yeah. World War Two games. So what they done was they went... So obviously this was released in 2007. They set it in 2011 in this kind of fictional, slightly alternate timeline, but not really. It had, it still had, the, it had a straight-from-the-headlines kind of story to it. So, you know... Middle Eastern terrorists, Russian terrorists, you know, nuclear bombs and things, and all stuff that scared the crap out of everybody that's been around long enough to, you know, have ever heard the words like the Cold War. It's that kind of story. The thing with, with Call of Duty 4 was it, it wasn't just a story that was revolutionary, or it wasn't just the multiplayer, it was, the, you know, it was the gameplay, it was fluid, it was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful game to play. I, honestly, I'm not entirely sure where to begin with this game. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how we'll, we'll start. Call of Duty 1, when it was made, Infinity Ward had a staff of a little over 20 people. By the time we got to Modern Warfare 4, Modern Warfare 4? 3. In, in, Call of Duty 4? Yeah. Modern Warfare 1. <laughs> Infinity Ward had increased fivefold in size. It was a hundred strong studio working ten to the dozen on this game, which... <laughs> Like I say, it it blew everything out of the water. I, I mean, I, I, you played Modern Warfare, I assume. Yeah, I played it. What? It was, wasn't until after Modern Warfare 2 had been released. I think it was getting close to Black Ops arriving by the time I'd actually played it, because one of my friends yelled at me, because I mentioned in a game that I'd never played it. So he said, go back and play it. So got a hold of a copy, finished the story. Yeah, it was pretty good. I certainly enjoyed it, I'd say. It was, I think, it was one of the first games, or maybe not the first game, but one of the more recent, one of the most, one of the earliest of the most recent games that we've played or we've been playing. They had a storyline that wasn't just you couldn't just move on from it. You know, you couldn't just do a mission and move on to the next one. So there are certain parts, and I do, you know, I do kind of apologise if I spoil this for anybody, but you can't talk about modern warfare and not talk about this. You know, it's it's set in the near future and not far into the story, someone drops a nuke on a well it doesn't drop a nuke someone detonates a nuke in a city wiping out everybody including your character who not long after you're forced to spend time with as he dies it's just it was one of the most harrowing experiences I think I've had in a game for quite a while only recently actually uh, topped maybe or at least equaled for me with Battlefield 1 
but that's for a different day. You know, this it was this, this really this kind of horrible moment. Okay, so it it was just it was like, oh, that's a bit that's a bit hardcore. Fucking hell, they've they've dropped a nuclear bomb. Okay, that's a bit hardcore. And then within a minute, you're back playing your character, and literally you're just crawling around trying to survive, and then not. And it, it was, was it was a the mission was essentially it's a cutscene of you leading into the mission that you want where it's you in the helicopters or something and you're trying to yep. stop the nuke from going off. That's your mission. Well, no, you're nowhere near the nuke. You're trying to get clear because someone's warned you that it's actually your characters that you've been playing as earlier ah. have warned you that it's there. Yeah. And you're at you're there on a different mission. I need to you're just get a soldier. Playing you're it, no yeah. one special, and you. <laughs> And you have to get you have to get into your helicopter and fuck off quick and get to minimum safe distance and something happens, you have to land and then try and get away and you don't get away quick enough and your helicopter's taken down when the nuke goes off. And you're in control of your character, more or less, for all of this. So this is where it's one of the few times that first person shooters have actually done what they're supposed to do and put you in the position of being this person. You know, you're not just standing there with a controller you feel like you're the guy you're there and it's happening to you and I noticed actually what I was doing while I was playing it the other day the vibrators in my controller were going fucking mental absolutely mental like it didn't drag you away from the game but you were struggling to hold on to it as it was you know as this thing was happening yeah a little bit later and it's only a couple of minutes you're back in in the same character's position in a crashed helicopter blood everywhere including your blood and you drag yourself out of the helicopter and die. And it's just horrible. You know, and it's it's not something that... Up until this point, I don't think we'd ever had something like that happen. All of a sudden, everybody that's playing this... What's supposed to be a just a bit of a fun shoot has gone... Oh, fuck. That's terrifying. You know, it's it's kind of... And like I say, it's, it's, it's born of this post-Cold War... Everybody's nuclear fear. And it's put right up there on the screen for you to play. And it's... It's genuinely harrowing, and it was it was a unique experience at the time, you know, from a story point of view. But when you're done with that, you then go on to play a, a revolutionary multiplayer that has literally changed the face of of online gaming forever. With you know, kill streaks, the the most you know the most original thing ever to come out of this game was kill streaks, and now every game has it. There will never ever be any denying how much effect. Call of Duty 4 has had on shooters in general for the past 10 years. Yeah, as someone who picked it up long after Modern Warfare 2 had been released and I'd played it Modern Warfare 2, I'd finished the story of Modern Warfare 2 at least once. I went around to playing Call of Duty 4 for the first time. So this is what 3 3 years after it was released. Yeah. And I tell you what, apart from two moments in the entire game, one you've mentioned, I, the story kind of fell a little flat for me. It's just it wasn't the game that was sold to me by my friend and by reviews and by everything. It was everyone saying that the story was the greatest thing in the world, but I'm coming into it from having played the f- the second Modern Warfare game. So more more of that later, but like I said, apart from two moments, the nuke going off and the opening credit scene. I'm the Oh yeah, okay. In the car. Yep, yep, President Assad. Uh no, the other one. Uh it's President Al Falani. Yeah. Assad's the bad guy. Assad's the guy that kills him. Yeah. Yeah. But spoilers, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it was. Apart from those two moments, 
the, the story wasn't anything, and I'm getting the same similar. I'm getting the similar feeling playing the remaster. I after I played the remaster, I'd finished uh, Infinite Warfare at this point, and decided to flick on the 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 Modern Warfare story to give it another bash through. And I'm as far as playing as the Army Rangers walking through the town. Jackson. Yes, I've done the the mission of them inside the news station, and I've shot out all the the TVs that I could find. Yeah, I missed one somewhere. Yeah, I think there's two. I always do before you get to the TV station that you need to shoot. Yeah, at. there are. They're up on roofs. Yeah, I think. And I, and I found those. Yeah, I, and I only I still found didn't one get of them. The fucking trophy. Yeah, <laughs> fucking probably but, bugged or some shit. But yeah, I'm I'm on the mission after that one. It's the Army Rangers, and it's just it's not drawing me in. It doesn't. Really? It doesn't. I don't. It. I tell you what. Infinite Warfare. The story was more enticing to me. Than it than Call of Duty Four story was. I mean that's interesting. Cause something I was gonna I was gonna save maybe and bring up a little bit later. But there's this this thing with Call of Duty Four, and I I do genuinely think the Call of Duty Four and Modern Warfare Two, maybe just the Modern Warfare arc in general, are the peak of Call of Call of Duty campaigns. I'm not denying that that they are probably the but, the best of the stories overall. But but what I mean is with things like uh, if I said to you name me you know a couple of big things that happen in Black Ops 2, you know, there'll be a couple of people that can name a couple of the big moments, but, you know, if if you say to somebody, you know, all gillied up, everybody knows all gillied up, you know, it's, okay, so the story, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the first person shooter story, I mean, I thought the story was excellent. It has these, and the only word for these missions, as far as I'm concerned anyway, is iconic. All, all gillied up is, is a yardstick for so many stealth sections in all games since Call of Duty 4. And like I say, the, the nuke going off was just... It was revolutionary. Nobody had really done that before. And I mean, outside of things like Doom and Quake, where all hell constantly breaks loose, quite literally, <laughs> in some of those games. But actual real life, only a couple of years away from where we act- where we really are, and someone's launching you know, nuclear missiles. I, I, I mean, obviously, not everybody feels the same. and Obviously, you don't, but... I, and when you play it after Modern Warfare 2, I could see that probably being a problem. Because Modern Warfare 2 as a story, I thought also was excellent. But no, Call of Duty 4, it changed so much when it came to first-person shooters and, and how their stories are written. You know, it forced people to actually have a, a proper narrative, not just, here's people, kill them. Which is what a lot of our shooters up until that point was. Were, sorry. So moving on from that, although actually, no, not, not quite moving on from that. One thing I will say, because I did, like I said, I looked at like the the writers and things like that, and while nothing really uh, stuck out apart from the fact that Billy Connolly, the man from The Bill, played Captain Price, <laughs> and and the dude who just does nothing but dodgy fucking London gangster films now, Craig Fairbrass, played Gaz. The music, interestingly, was done by the guy that also then went on and done the music for Titanfall, which, while anybody that doesn't know the story of Infinity Ward and Titanfall would find that interesting, I actually found it quite funny. That they, the guys clearly took their composer with them as well when they left Infinity Ward. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Let's be honest. Who? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so then, so moving on. So then we're now back to solidly. In, yeah, we're solidly into the back and forth between Infinity Ward and Treyarch. Call of Duty is a yearly franchise, and there's no getting away from that. Treyarch decide not to do anything modern, and they decide to go back to World War Two. So did you did you play World at War? I did. I picked World at War up at launch. It was uh, because I f- 
think a lot of people told me I missed out on Modern Warfare, but I just the idea of modern combat just didn't appeal to me back then. And when they announced another World War Two shooter, I was gotta get hold of that one. So picked it up at launch, and as far as I'm concerned, it didn't disappoint. You had the the COD Four engine, like all shooters, like at the same time had the COD Four engine. I think like the James Bond game had a COD Four engine at one point. Well, the James, I believe the James Bond game was made by Treyarch. It's you may be right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I I don't think I played apart from like Goldeneye. Everybody I didn't did. really play. I, yeah, I didn't play many James Bond games. I played a couple of the, the 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 PlayStation Two versions because they actually had original stories, which were not terrible, actually. So fair enough. But the it's, um this is a game where you had a co-op campaign, I think that was quite famous for it, except for one mission, which was only available if you're playing single player, where you fly a boat. Oh yeah. Yeah, that I remember that much because I played the co-op campaign. And then played the campaign in single player and got really confused. As, as <laughs> suddenly, when I'm flying boats around. Yeah, no, I I think I only played World at War once. I don't I don't think I ever played it in co-op. Now, World at War was definitely one of the games where we we absolutely moved into the realms of we're going full 18 year old gaming, like proper mature, because it's the one that you could you could shoot people's but, uh, limbs off. And yeah, you got so a flamethrower at one point. And you could just set people on fire. You watch their bodies just burn. It's really fucking horrendous. It had some really like proper blood curdling screaming in it as well when you killed so- or when you shot somebody. Yeah. You know, it it wasn't just this, uh, dead. It was like really horrific. You know, someone may have actually been in pain when they were recording the audio for that. Almost full Wilhelm. <laughs> yeah. It was. Yeah. It was not nice. Like it was not a pleasant game to play. And at quite a few points, it wasn't fun. And I think. This kind of continues on from what I was saying with COD 4, like it had had parts of it that made you think it wasn't just good time, fun times, shooty thing game. You know, now we were in quite a horrible, horrible little game that, you know, was really designed to make you uncomfortable in places. And where I know a lot of people kind of slagged on World at War's campaign, but I thought it was brilliant and really, like I say, quite genuinely uncomfortable. Yeah, when you're walking through, like, Japanese rice fields with a flamethrower, you kind of do start to think a bit more about the whole, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I'm having fun setting people on fire. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, the... Uh... But you're killing the, the, the people who aren't the white man, so it's all okay. Well, yeah. That's, you know, it's always good. They're the people you're killing. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely had this kind of more more emphasis on the... The horrors of war, didn't it? It it had this to make you make you realise that you know you might be having fun, but lads, this wasn't a good time. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, I find it's quite amusing. It's the whole war is terrible, and you, you know you're playing these games and you're seeing the horrendous stuff of war, and yet we still remember those many conversations we overheard while we were working together at the school, in hearing the kids say, "I'd be great in the army. I'm well sick at sniping." On Call of well, Duty. yeah. But kids are twats. Yes, they are. Every single fucking one of them. <laughs> but, so, I mean, the thing with World at War, okay, so this is getting back onto games. There are a couple of memorable points of World at War for me. For me, most notably, like we, we, we touched on earlier, finishing the game, you and your mate Gary Oldman, who does <laughs> one of the voices for it. Yeah, Reznov. Yeah, Victor Reznov, who is probably outside of 
Price and Soap, probably the most memorable character from a Call of Duty game. And he his voice, I mean, it's Gary Oldman. Yeah. He brought the same performance to that as he brought to every film he's ever been in. You know, I, I, I fucking adore Gary Oldman, and I thought he was amazing. Gary Oldman is one of the greatest of human beings of all time. That's, you know, that's not to take anything away from his, his co-star in World at War, your American boss and the narrator of the game, Mr. Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> yeah. The, some of the most memorable parts of this game are with Reznov. You know, like I said earlier, finishing the game by planting the flag on the roof of the Reichstag, ending the war in, in that part of Europe, essentially. You know, it was a really, really good, really good moment. It really, it's a really cool moment to play, even though you're clearly clearly dying and Gary Oldman says to you as long as you're alive the war won't stop <laughs> yeah okay I'm just gonna die now but, you know you had a sniper hunt with him if I remember rightly I think so yeah which was very cool yeah I I absolutely I thought Gary Oldman done a great job and he's probably some of my favorite voice work in the Call of Duty Call of Duty franchise but then there's there's not forget World at War introduced more I'd done almost as much for multiplayer as Call of Duty 4 did was it introduced Nazi zombies yeah it started started off as just a little mini game and uh, now look at it <laughs> well like exactly now look at it you know it's this massive you know every, if you don't put zombies in your game like it used to be a thing it just it would only be in Treyarch games and now everybody wants it in all of their games yeah zombies are everywhere but the thing is is that no, I bet nobody was thinking Nazi zombies would take off the way it did. I mean, there what? How many films now that feature zombies that were of of Nazi soldiers? Oh, the, yeah, you cut that. It's an uncountable number. It's like I think it's like trying to get to the end of Pi. Yeah, it's just just ridiculous that as, as a whole, Nazi zombies exist outside of Call of Duty: World at War, and they've moved into film, TV, all kinds of shit. They're just everywhere. But beyond that. At no point did the guys at Treyarch think Zombies is going to be the staple to the Call of Duty franchise for Treyarch games. And no. even this, I think the Infinite Warfare has the Zombies game mode, and that's a that's an Infinity Ward game. Yes. So we've got Nazi Zombies, later just classed as Zombies, because they stopped being just Nazis. It's just whatever the enemy it is at the time that you're facing, is just ha- they just happen to be Zombies. But yeah. it's bigger than standard multiplayer. People go well out of their way to try and find easter eggs, like just like the the pack-a-punch locations, weird little things like trying to find out how to do certain things and I only found out recently when looking into it. There's a story. Mm-hmm. There's there's a story to zombies. I thought it was yep. just ca- standard horde mode shoot everything, last as many ways as you can. But no, there's there's actually objectives to go out of your way to complete. And yep. it tells a story overall. I'm almost certain that the Black Ops games, their their zombie modes have a have an overarching story as well. So there's a story that runs through all three games and their zombie campaigns, which is more than what the game's actual campaigns does. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're we're going to get to that. I'm quite looking forward to that because for the most part, everything I have to say about Call of Duty is more or less positive. At this point, you know, between Call of Duty Five and Modern Warfare 2, I suppose World of War and Modern Warfare 2, because they stopped with numbers after Modern Warfare. But yeah. Well, even the remaster doesn't even mention Call of Duty 4, it just says Call of Duty Modern Warfare remastered. Yeah. So it's like, looking back at it, 3 was the last number. 3 is the only number, in fact. At this point, now Call of Duty is this behemoth of a game. Like, it, it's unstoppable now. And the second 
the marketing kicked in for Modern Warfare 2, I've never seen anything like it. You know, the entire world went mental for this game. You know, absolutely mental. And we're talking multiplayer players and campaign players alike. Everybody was desperate to get their hands on this game. I don't think it's something that Call of Duty's managed to match since. I don't think it's something that any game's managed to match since. There are obviously games that, that uh, people are very excited for, and there are games that people go to bit massive packed midnight launches for but i've never seen a game like modern warfare 2 when it came out had queues coming out of supermarkets at three o'clock in the morning people trying to get their hands on this fucking game i've never seen anything like that since well, that was the thing it wasn't because midnight launches weren't a thing really up until this point you know in town from where we are game the one that does the midnight launch, it's the one in the middle of the of the city center's shopping center rather mm-hmm. it's the one that's smack in the middle they had yep. to. They had people queuing outside the main door because you can't. You, they weren't allowing people to go in. They were queuing yep. outside from nine o'clock. Easy. Yep. There was a queue forming, and it was just getting longer and longer and longer. And I, I didn't go personally, but it was one of my friends, who was there, to queue up. They were let in because the plan. What they didn't anticipate that this game was going to be this huge. But yep. it's not just the game shops. Because, I, well, back then it was Game and Game Station. I think yeah. they both existed. So both were queuing. I mean, you know, for where we were, they were pretty much opposite at the time in shops. They were just like the opposite on the same same court. Yeah. But it was the price war for the supermarkets. That's what really was hilarious because it was, we're going to sell Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 for £35. Yep. And then Tesco went, uh, came in and said, 30 quid. Asda. 25 and then it got to a point where it was they were all selling 25 quid brand new copy of modern warfare 2 yeah all you had to do was buy 50 pounds worth shopping. Of shopping 50 pounds worth of shopping and you buy a copy of call of duty for 25 quid now yep. you've just spent 75 quid on a game essentially at this point <laughs> because you've gone in there you've bought your 25 pound game you've gone downstairs to do the rest of your shopping and you've gone how can i spend 50 quid you are some a 16 20 year old looking yeah. or you're the parent of a game of a gamer and they're just going around doing their casual weekly shopping and their son's picked up a copy of Call of Duty saying that it's 25 quid if you buy it today with these with our shopping yep cuz you've done your weekly shop because it was midnight launch over here was done on what Friday yeah it was a Thursday night Friday morning so yep the people were going into Tesco Friday doing their weekly shop, as everyone does in this country, Friday's weekly shop. But you've got yourself a £25 game because for some reason the shops decided that that's a great marketing campaign. And apparently it fucking worked. Oh, yeah. It fucking it worked. A, Modern Warfare 2 is one of the biggest and most successful game launches. Not just Call of Duty launches, but one of the biggest and most successful game launches ever. It, like I say, and there is no other word for it as far as I'm concerned. It is a behemoth of a game. I mean, I I wasn't ordering stuff online at the time. I was working when the game came out. You know, my lunch break was popping into game. You know, nipping into town to pick up the, a copy of, of Modern Warfare 2 so I could go home and play it. You know, and I remember looking at it going, now it's in my bag and I don't want to be here. I want to go home and play Modern Warfare 2. So, yeah, I mean, should we talk a bit about the actual game and not just about the uh, the marketing for it? Yeah, let's go, let's go with the game. Uh, so, I mean, it's set, it's set five years after the end of Modern Warfare 1. Yep. And I have to get this right. It's uh, your main bad guy from 1's 
assistant to IC, his mate uh, Imran Zakayev, is on a, a mission to make you know give, send Russia back to its uh, its former glory by killing everybody else. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's set in the what, same universe as Modern Warfare 1, so it's what yes. happened if the Russians didn't fold in the Cold War and they're still Soviet, basically. So, yeah. five, Like I say, five years later, and Soap and Price and get well, Gaz, who was killed at the end of Modern Warfare 1. So you get to play as... So you get to have uh, Ghost. Yeah, they may or may not be back as Ghost. <laughs> the same, same bloke's voice. <laughs> it's Craig Fairbrass again, so he's... He's back doing the voice, and you know, I, I don't know about I, so many people I know loved Ghost just as a character, and not just because he was wearing a cool skull balaclava, but because he was just a really cool character. Well, he had all the one-liners. Yeah, like uh, he had with Gaz. So Soap isn't in the SAS anymore. He's been moved, should we say, to a new group. He's now in Task Force One Forty One, who's led by actually, and now Soap has a voice. He didn't have a voice in Modern Warfare One because you were Soap. But now you're not soap anymore. He has a voice actor, and it's Train Spotting's Kevin McKidd, or Dog Soldiers is Kevin McKidd. It's just Kevin McKidd. That that Scottish bloke that I don't know the name of. Yeah, his name's <laughs> Kevin McKidd. Apparently, <laughs> you now work with Soap. You're a different person. You know, faceless guy with gun. Right. Uh, and your boss. <laughs> yeah. And your boss, General Shepard, is actually uh, voiced by the legendary Lance Henriksen, the man behind Bishop in the Alien films. And, you know, he was in Millennium. He was, he's, he's Lance Henriksen. He's in fucking everything. <laughs> and the story does follow on quite well. It's, it's all, you know, people killing other people with political intrigue. There's, you know... But it, because we're in... You know, we have to up the stakes from Modern Warfare. Modern Warfare was such a great campaign, such a great story that they have to up the stakes for it and... And they do just that with by having Russia invade the United States. And if I've got my timeline right, this is after what is probably yeah, probably the most one of the most controversial video game uh, levels missions in all of video gaming. Uh, certainly, at least for quite some time, and for quite some time afterwards. And obviously, I'm talking about the uh, the now infamous No Russian yeah, mission. No Russian. Where you're an undercover, I, th- I think it's when is it when you're a roach? No, you're playing no, no. as uh, Joseph Allen. It's not, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's the, it's the USMC guy. Roach yeah. is, is later on. You're undercover with Zakayev's Russians. Makarov. Makarov's Russians. Thank you. <laughs> and it's been a while since I have played Modern Warfare Two. I only know because it's, uh, it's the name of a pistol. I think Makarov. And, uh, and yeah, then you just generic Russian first name Makarov. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're given uh, an M249, and you just have to mow down everybody in an airport. You don't have to mow them down. You you can well, you, have to. you can choose you to do. not fire the gun. Did you choose to not fire the gun? Fuck no. Exactly. <laughs> it did. I mean, and uh, no, I'm I'm not that guy. I'm not the oh, you should be sensitive and nice to everybody. No, fuck no, I'm not. But I did see where the issue came with this mission because if you know, it it was. There, there is a point, and movies get this a lot. And if there's a reason for you to be killing somebody, if there's a reason for you to be shooting someone, it's acceptable. But you know, someone's shooting at you, you shoot back at them. It's a war game. But now you're playing a guy who's mowing down innocent people in an airport in, you know, in an age where you know domestic terrorism or terrorism in general, you know, it comes in those kind of guises. So I can understand where the uh, where the outcry came from. 
Uh, and fair play to Activision and and Infinity Ward. They they done a good job and they they patched it in so you got a choice. You didn't have to play it. You know you were asked at the beginning. There's you know there's an awful fucking mission coming up. Do you want to skip it? You don't have to play it at all. People like me at the time who were trophy hunters. There was there's not a single trophy or achievement assigned to that mission. So you weren't going to be penalised for not playing it. It was a it was a good answer for for that particular problem because for people that were big enough and ugly enough to realize that it is just a game and it does progress the story that's fine but for people that were going to be a little bit offended or just felt a bit uncomfortable you know again something i can completely understand you had the ability to skip it yeah now you didn't have the ability to skip it i believe in the australian version which i think it was not in it at all i think it was actually cut completely out of it which makes sense because australians don't get to do anything fun no the australian uh australian ratings especially when it comes to games is is extremely strict i'm almost certain if you looked into it a bit more you might find that it's probably not non-existent in the german version as well because german ga- uh, german copies of games are censored quite heavily too so i think that was more genius marketing actually because i didn't know about the mission no russian apart from the fact that it was in the news everywhere it was people in the midnight launches that I went to, I think I went to the one at Tesco at the time, people in the queue were talking about No Russian. And now I wasn't looking into new games. I didn't particularly care enough about games back then to to really, you know, spend a lot of time on the internet trolling through, trying to find everything out about everything. So I wasn't entirely aware about what No Russian was. And people in the queue were talking about a mission that was what it was it was disgusting horrendous and it was it had no place in the 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 world essentially is what people in the media were saying now yeah. as someone who's played the mission yes it's pretty despicable what it is that you're doing but the game evolves better for having played it oh, of course it does it's definitely it's, it's all know, it's it, all well and good having the mission You know, and just at the end of the mission before it, you completely skip out the no Russian mission, and then you just get a cutscene that says the Russians have shot up a a uh, a Russian airport, pretending to be CIA to try and make the war that's happening happen faster. Yeah. And the Russians have fallen for it because there's a dead U.S. soldier. Yeah. As evidence. Oh, there's definitely yeah. It it definitely flows better as a story if you play the mission, and it definitely flows better as a game if you play the mission but it's the problem it has and it's something similar to what i mentioned earlier when you like you play the first call of duty and it's you know you're it's not a film that you can watch and turn your eyes away from it's something that you have to do you know you physically have to press forward and to to walk through this this airport you you know if you want to be the guy that you physically have to pull the trigger yourself to be killing these people it's and like i say and you know you know this well enough i'm not the guy that's oh just because it's in games it's going to turn me into a psychopath because no it's fucking not are you sure Pretty i mean sure. I've, i mean i've met you no <laughs> dickheads and useless fucking prats are what's going to turn me into a psychopath <laughs> not fucking video games i'm yeah. shooting all these innocent russian civilians in an airport now i'm going to go do it in real life because it happened in call of duty so yeah exactly but you know, so I, I do I do see the, the point in the uproar. I think, you know, Acting and Infinity Ward done the right thing by giving you the option to skip it. But I'm under no illusions. This was a buttload of free marketing for Activision and Infinity Ward. It, you know, because it's, you know, negative 
you know, people trying to be negative about something like that, you know, when most logical people will go, well, it's just a game. The people that get offended by it will be offended by it, but they weren't going to play the fucking game anyway. But you've now got a bunch of other people that go, I wonder what all the fuss was about, and go out and buy the game. And they're 50 quid worth of Asda shopping. You know, it's, I think it done very well. I think it, it did benefit a lot from the, the outcry. And it does, it's certainly more warranted than, say, the year before in the micro offence that was caused when you were killing attack dogs in World at War and some fucking busybody college student had to complain about it and because he complained on the internet fucking Petter got involved at least this one was maybe worth talking about you know but yeah Modern Warfare 2 not more of the same not in the slightest it's an excellent excellent game and and evolved the game the story the you know and again the multiplayer introduced Spec Ops missions yes so it introduced co-op to Modern Warfare. Now, Spec Ops missions, there was one that really stuck with me, and that was, you mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. or Gillied Up, or as it was in, in Spec Ops, it was Gillies in the Mist, which is named for the achievement, yep. where it yep. was essentially a two-player version of the stealth section of crawling through the long grass at uh, Chernobyl yep. from, the, from the first Modern Warfare game, which was the first time I played that mission was in Spec Ops before going back to playing it again and obviously a bit wiser I do like the game I do like that mission and when I get a, eventually get around to it in the remaster I can't wait to play it again because it was a, it's a lot of fun so the, the the Spec Ops certainly helped yeah Spec Ops was a lot of fun I quite enjoyed Spec Ops because it was something because I don't like so I, I tend to not play that much multiplayer anymore but co-op you know when you get a, a mate I'm on you know do you want to have a quick you know, quick go at it. Yeah, why not? Because it's just me and him, and we can whack it on. You know, just normal difficulty and just chat shit while we do it. You know, it's I. That's the kind of co-op and multiplayer I like. So yeah, I, I didn't mind Spec Ops. No, I Modern Warfare Two. I loved it. I, I, there's no other way to describe it. I I I fucking adore Modern Warfare Two. And if it wasn't for the fact that I'm a sucker for Call of Duty, and as much as I say every year, oh, no, I'm not going to buy it, I'll wait for it to go cheap, I still fucking buy it on release day. If it wasn't for the fact that I wanted to play Modern Warfare Remastered, I would have hung around and uh, waited for the much-rumoured Modern Warfare trilogy to come out on the new machines and and bought that because, uh, yeah, just talking about it makes me want to go and play Modern Warfare 2 again. You know, much like the first one, so many standout moments in it. You know, so many moments you can go, fuck me, do you remember that bit? Do you remember when you, you know, you saved the White House when you felt like you were about to die, but you know, you you threw green smoke to say everything was okay. You know, it just an outstanding game. Yeah, and as far as it goes, it's the plot twist for in that game was probably only second to Black Ops plot twist, which we'll we'll get into later. But yeah, it was certainly something and again it adds to the whole you play a character as they die situation and oh yeah you know what i'd say this one is probably as bad as crawling into a nuclear explosion there's there's it's just it feels it felt wrong yeah because there was the moment towards the end wasn't there there was the and you know we're going to spoil this in case you haven't played modern warfare 2 but it's it's while you're playing as Roach, isn't it? Yeah, and so, so Roach and Ghost are betrayed by their boss, which is bad enough as it is. And while it's not an original plot twist, it wasn't necessarily something you saw coming. Yeah, but you're then shot and set on fire, and you kind of 
you know, and it's not for long, but you're kind of sitting there and left, left to burn. Yeah. And yeah, it's not, not pleasant, but the, there is that, that feeling, like I mentioned earlier, of having to one-up what they did with Modern Warfare 1. I don't think they did it in that particular instance, but it was quite horrible nonetheless. It was, it was quite horrendous. And the thing is, is that I'm pretty sure you don't die straight away from being set on fire. I think that it's there's the scene of Price and Soap coming around because they they know they find out about it so they've they've come to you and you're still alive because you see Price and Soap talking from the perspective of a dude who's essentially dead on yep. the floor and then you die slowly then. So <laughs> you're playing a character who's been set on fire and it's uh, hours later you're still alive after having been set on fire. Yeah. So just if you think about that, it's just it's awful. And yeah, you know, more more straight from the headlines kind of story. I yeah I I tell you what, in two years' time, we'll get a Modern Warfare Two remaster with the next Infinity War to Infinite Warfare Two, probably. We're gonna get to that in a bit as well. Yeah. Because after we're a couple of games away from the cycle changing up a little bit, and that is actually where we're gonna stop for this week, because. Holy hell, what was supposed to be a quick talk about Call of Duty turned into a three and a bit hour marathon. So we're going to cut this in half, we're going to stop here, and come back next week, and well, you can have the rest of it then. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. Uh, we are at Character Unlock on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Anywhere you can type at Character Unlock, you will find us. And I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope you come back for the second part of it in just a few days time thank you very much for listening again Character Unlock was presented by Andrew Brooker and John Miller with music provided with permission from Miracle of Sound from the track A Dog's Life Character Unlock is recorded for failed critics and is a part of the failed media network of podcasts along with Field and Mullinger's Underground Nights and the Failed Critics Film Podcast. And you can check us out at failedcritics.com or find us on Twitter at Character Unlock. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.